0: Today we discuss shortness of breath, as well as a refresher on oxygen use and prescribing. Our expert today is Dr. Cam Sullivan.
1: Yeah, so um, it's a very unusual circumstance that I'm described as an expert in anything, <laughs> but um, I'm a dual trainee in general medicine and uh, respiratory, and I'm currently working as a registrar at Middlemore Hospital. Uh, trained in the UK, but I've been working here for many years now. I've got a reasonable breadth of uh, Exposure to all of the Auckland hospitals and the different challenges and variety that you get, a variety of patients at those different hospitals.
0: And that's partly what makes you an expert. So, Cam was chief resident when I first started as a doctor, he was my registrar, Um, certainly seemed to make medicine look easy. (laughs) (laughs) And so, he's got a lot of experience in actually working on the wards, seeing uh, short of breath patients, and as a trainee um, in respiratory medicine. Hopefully, he just has that slight edge. So, Starting with a differential for shortness of breath, I like to cover life threatening things first and then go through a kind of systems based approach. So, life threatening things include pulmonary embolism, infection, asthma, anaphylaxis, pneumothorax, pulmonary edema or pulmonary hemorrhage, anemia, and narcosis. And then, following on, obstructive causes COPD in a foreign body, kind of atelectasis, especially post op and pleural effusion. Cardiac causes of shortness of breath include heart failure, arrhythmia, and ACS. Then I think mechanical causes like obesity, sleep apnea, a flail chest, think about blocked chest drain, or ascites. And then don't forget drugs and pregnancy. In terms of a general approach, eyeballing the patient where possible, doing your ABCs, and, you know, and a respiratory arrest code if the patient's, I think, kind of having difficulty talking to you. Like, where was, would kind of be your threshold, do you think?
1: Um, for a house officer, sometimes you need to put out a, a respiratory arrest call to get help quickly. You need hands on deck. You know that you're going to need somebody to take blood or put a line in or, or get an AB, ABG, and you just need lots of people there quickly. So if you think that there's more to be done than you can do quickly yourself, that, that in itself is a reasonable call Um Significant desaturation. I think, you know, any SATs in the low 80s or below, you certainly want help quickly. But I think ultimately, by the time that you're called, often the nurse has already put a code out or is thinking about it already. So, certainly using the PUP scores as a, or the early warning scores as a guide is reasonable.
0: So, for perhaps a not so emergent case, you've got a patient who is either complaining of shortness of breath or they've had reduced saturations, yeah. um, I guess, in the low 90s, uh, high 80s. Mm-hmm. But they're able to give you a history. Yeah. I'm going to ask them about when does this come on to the onset? Do they have any signs of in- symptoms of infection, or cough, sputum? Yeah. Uh, what are, what's kind of their respiratory history? Do they use inhalers? Uh, is there a possibility of a foreign body? Have they t- tried any new or they've started any new medications? Do they have any rash or edema, yeah. uh, any signs of anaphylaxis, yeah. their pain, and also a general review of symptoms. I'm going to go through their background um, and try to identify risk factors. Uh, what other things do you think are...
1: Uh, one of the things that I always ask patients is, has this ever happened before? And they might tell you exactly what it is. You know, you, this happened last time I choked on something, or last time I got mucus plugging, uh, I couldn't bring something up, and then I became very breathless. So... That's always something I ask is you know the, the history of prior breathlessness if you have time. But bearing in mind that if they are breathless, you need to ask fairly direct questions with yes-no sort yeah. of answers as much as you can.
0: So onto examination, you're always going to check the vitals. Yeah. Uh, and then a general inspection, you're mm-hmm. going to want to know what their current oxygen requirements are. Are they just on room air? If they are on oxygen, check the flow rate. Um, know the FiO2. So you need to know what, what they're currently requiring uh, to maintain their SATs.
1: Yeah. And that's particularly important for if you're calling for help.
0: Yes. Um, Is the patient talking in sentences, broken sentences, single words? I think you get very quickly get an appreciation when you're in front of them uh, as to how much they're struggling for breath. But if you can quantify it, I think like that, it's useful down the phone. Mm -hmm. You know, check the peripheries um, and do a quick fluid review. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then on to examining the chest. How do you propose you kind of do that in a time-efficient but kind of effective manner? Well, I mean, the, the money is listening to the back quickly. Um,
1: obviously, it's nice if you have time to do a full examination, but um, I tend to listen at, at the bases. And as you've you've mentioned, listening all the way through a breathing cycle, not just moving your stethoscope around really quickly. Listening to the heart sounds helps, but um, often if they're particularly breathless and breathing quickly, you won't be able to hear the heart sounds particularly well. And that's probably more important for a patient who's got known cardiac disease. I think your approach is good there. I mean, one of the things that I always do as soon as I come into the room to see somebody who's breathless is sit them upright, um, and that that'll assist you with listening to their chest. And if you get that done fairly quickly, that might give you the answer. They might be really wheezy, or you might hear air entering one side of the chest, or if they've got crackles at the bases, you can start to make the next assessment pretty quickly.
0: And often, just sitting them upright helps with their breathlessness. To start off with. It's yeah. surprising how many times that nobody's thought of that by the yeah. time you get
1: there. Or they may have slightly low blood pressure, and the nurses laying them flat—something <laughs>
0: <You know, laughs> along those lines. Yeah. So yeah, so posterior, make the efforts to listen to the posterior chest and do that properly. Mm-hmm. And it's where, you, like you said, it's, it's where the money is. It's where you're going to get the most information. I yeah. uh, check the abdomen, uh, probably primarily to check for is there pain? Pain in the upper abdomen that's potentially contributing to this. Yeah. Um, and I guess if they're a post-op patient, yeah. Um, calf tenderness and swelling. Not great clinical signs, but I think people would tend to expect you to do it. Um, and it's quick and easy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, And it gives you some exposure. You get yeah. to look at the legs, find some drains, catheters that you might have otherwise missed. Yeah. Yeah. If there's a chest drain, what should a chest drain look like?
1: Well, a chest drain that is in the chest should be swinging. That's that's the key thing. And that that's something that I always check first, if there's a chest drain there. Because... We've all seen patients who've got a chest drain in for a pneumothorax and it becomes blocked and nobody's noticed and the tension and actually the easiest way to fix them is to flush 10 mils of fluid down the drain. So um, it's important to check the the site of insertion of the drain to make sure the drain is actually still within the chest. They haven't got a massive fluid collection underneath the skin or um, to check the area around it for surgical emphysema. So check the site of the insertion of the drain and then check the length of the tube that it's attached all the way along, and then is the drain swinging or bubbling? If a drain's bubbling, that's not going to change the management of someone who's acutely breathless necessarily. Um, it means it's doing its job to remove the air, but um, if it's particularly if it stops swinging, you want to know is it still functioning and therefore is the fluid
0: building up or the air building up behind it? And by swinging, you mean it's an air fluid level in the water? Yes, yeah, so and, that, and that's
1: a good point, actually, because often there's a tiny amount of fluid in the drain itself before it's connected to the to the tubing, and uh, you may see just a tiny column of fluid moving in that space when you can't see swinging anywhere else, so it's good to check for swinging as close to the site of insertion as possible.
0: So next you'd be thinking about investigations, and ABG is probably the most applicable to shortness of breath. Yeah. yeah I've certainly heard things like the ABG is your friend, and just do the ABG. Yeah. Practically, it does take a bit of time to find the ABG, perform yeah. it, uh, send the results. So, where is it a really, really good idea? And who, I guess, probably more specifically, who would kind of doesn't need an ABG? I mean, someone who's not hypoxic, um, it's probably not going to
1: alter your management all that much. I actually, uh, the thing that I like about an ABG is that it gives you so much more information beyond the oxygenation and carbon dioxide, and you get the answer quickly. So, if you're going to choose a blood test of some form. Even a venous gas is going to tell you what the hemoglobin is. You can get a lactate on it, so you can get an idea of someone's organ perfusion or whether or not they've had way too much subutamol or something along those lines. Um, and you'll get, you know, electrolytes off of it as well. So we, all, we 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 like AVGs, particularly in respiratory, of course. And it's important to know about carbon dioxide. But if you see somebody on a venous gas who is acidotic and has, you know, a, a high... Bicarbonate, then regardless of what the CO2 measurement is, you're already thinking this person's likely to be a CO2 retainer, and the management might include BiPAP. So, um, I like tests that you can get an answer for quickly and are going to help you differentiate between causes of breathlessness. So, if you and, and how that might adjust your management. So, I actually think an ABG is good to do in most patients who, who are sick for any reason, and a venous gas is also reasonable in those situations. So, if you were called to see somebody who's very sick with abdominal pain, then a venous gas is going to quickly tell you about organ perfusion. Um, and, and I think that's, uh, that is actually a very useful one to do. And people often focus on getting large volumes of blood to send for culture and for blood count and CRP and all these things. But those results are going to take more than an hour. And if somebody is very breathless, then you may, it may not alter what you do for them in a short period of time.
0: I was thinking an ABG is a really good skill to have. So early on, you should probably be doing more of them just yeah. so that you get confident. Yeah. They're helpful in every
1: specialty. And The other thing, with, of course, with an ABG is that um, the patients who are very breathless are quite distracted. So actually, if you're going to do it on anybody, that's the person to do it on, not the person who's sitting there well in the clinic who's paying every you know very close attention to what you're doing. But yeah, the one yeah. who's obtunded, you can do it with less sort of...
0: Fussing. Somebody you have to convince to have an ABG is prob- it's probably it's possibly well enough. Yeah, yeah. Probably okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Um, you mentioned some other things: a full blood count, U and E. But a lot of those are actually covered in the ABG. Yeah. How about a chest X-ray? Uh,
1: chest X-ray, again, it's it's time dependent. So a chest X-ray is going to take a while. It's, if it's portable, in particular, it's probably going to be a fairly poor quality. and uh, The patient has to be in the right position, and that means you have to make them uncomfortable for a period of time while they put that back slab behind. I think it's useful to show the absence of something more than anything so a normal chest x-ray in a patient who's acutely breathless is helpful it might direct you down the line of looking more towards cardiac and um and pe as sort of a cause obviously you might get the classic bat's wing um appearance of a a, a, a pulmonary edema but um i I think a chest x-ray is reasonable to do if you know if you've got time but understand that it's going to you know slow you down a little bit and how much it'll add to your history findings and clinical examination findings is a little uncertain. Sometimes you need it to get, get help. You know, if you think this person's got a large pleural effusion or probably need to be aspirated out of hours, then you need to do it to demonstrate what you think clinically. But, you know, it, it's, not an, it's not an answer you get quickly. But the other test that you've highlighted, I think, is really useful as an ECG. If you have a normal ECG, then you can be reasonably confident that they're not having a massive MI. They're not having an arrhythmia that you're going to have to try and address at some stage. You might be able to say whether or not they've got significant right heart strain, which would point you down the line of thinking about a PE. Um, and you get it quickly at the bedside while you're waiting. The nurse can do it while you're taking a history or something else. So I like ABGs and ECGs because it gives you quick information that helps you to distinguish between causes of breathlessness.
0: On to documentation, you're always going to have a look through the past notes. You're going to do your basic state, time, name, reason for review. I'm going to document positives and pertinent negatives and your impression and differential with justification. Provide a clear and specific plan. So I think an important one, especially for uh, the nursing staff, is to specify a target uh, saturation range yeah. and prescribe oxygen and the delivery method. I've got posture as a second point. Where we've discussed that you're going to do that just in your workup, um, but also I think documenting that, telling the patient, telling the nursing staff, if you think that that's going to be of use. Uh-huh. When's chest physio going to be useful?
1: I I think, again, it's an issue of access. You can't easily get chest physio in most parts of the hospital at short notice. Um, Chest physio is particularly useful in people who uh, you're worried are not clearing secretions. So if they've got underlying um, infection in particular, or if you're worried about them aspirating or mucus plugging or something along those lines, it's very helpful for that. People with neuromuscular disease, obviously it's pretty essential because simply body positioning and using some other sort of breathing aids can help. but it's not going to be particularly useful, particularly in cardiac breathlessness or um, if they've got a drain in or something along those lines and it's, you, you don't often have access to it. So it's good to think about it, but it's not going to be the mainstay of your treatment necessarily unless they've got mucus plugging, in which case it's very important.
0: So in terms of medications, analgesia is really important if pain is contributing to the shortness of breath. I yeah. uh, Think about antibiotics um, and prednisone think about fluid restriction, accurately um, documenting what you mean by that, and diuretics like frizomide. Consider discussion with a senior, especially I think if you're starting any of these medications, if you're not confident with them, and certainly if you're called back to see the patient again. Also think about transfer to the respiratory ward. Oxygen's not as simple as we sometimes uh, think it is, and the respiratory ward staff are a lot more comfortable using things more than nasal prongs.
1: And I, and I think that's reflected in the fact that When you're on call, you probably actually get fewer calls for breathless patients on a respiratory ward than you do to other wards. And I think that shows the confidence the nurses have treating people who are breathless or hypoxic. They may make some simple adjustments to their oxygenation or change the oxygen delivery device and see if that will correct it before they put a call out, for example.
0: Yeah, I think it's really, it's also, I've found it useful to just talk to the nurse looking after the patient um, and just describe what I mean by the oxygen delivery method, if it's a mask, I will say I want it to be at least four litres. Talk about titrating um, and especially how to use um, a Venturi mask. Don't just make the assumption that uh, everybody knows uh, how these devices should be used. What conservative measures do you think are the most useful to start off with for the shorter breath patient or the patient with a reduced oxygen saturation?
1: Well, I, I, th- I think it's always key initially to, to go into reviewing any patient who's breathless with a fairly healthy dose of scepticism. Um, I always want to know, are the SATs as low as I've been told they are? So it's good to check it yourself. Get a pulse oximeter and and measure them yourself. See if they're getting a good trace. Are the SATs low? Because actually they've got freezing cold hands or Raynaud's or something else. So confirm that they are hypoxic. And then the respiratory rate itself is a very sensitive way of telling if somebody's sick. You're not going to... I mean, you might have patients who normally have a low systolic blood pressure or normally have a low heart rate, but aren't likely to have... A normal respiratory rate in the 30s that's going to be abnormal so check those things yourself in terms of conservative measures positioning is key by sitting someone upright you're allowing greater expansion of the chest you're allowing gravity to have an effect on the diaphragm pulling down during inspiration um, and give them an effective position for coughing obviously if they've got pulmonary edema then you're going to um, move the fluid to an area which is not ventilated quite so much so positioning i think is really helpful um, in terms of breathlessness uh, what conservative measures well for for breathlessness itself if there's an obvious cause which you can't easily remove then we tend to use a fair amount of uh, morphine and and mild sedatives um, if they're panicky then uh, midazolam nasal spray and those sorts of things but i think it's important to have a cut off for how much you give i don't like the idea of prescribing someone morphine or fentanyl and put as per ivy protocol or whatever i tend to give very clear instructions on how much i want them to use Often the nurses will know that if a patient's very breathless, they can give them the morphine that's already charted, but I tend to give them oral morphine, easy for them to take, um, and then give them a, a small dose, let's say every four hours, and then say, if it's, if it's still very breathless, we can either reconsider and reinvestigate or prescribe it more frequently. Um, if, they, if they are hypoxic, then you just need to do a rough assessment of how hypoxic they are and what sort of oxygen delivery device has already been tried. Um, And how are you going to adjust the amount of oxygen that you can deliver? And I think that from that perspective, it's helpful to think in terms of an FiO2, because you need to know roughly how much oxygen you can deliver with a certain device. The other thing I always think about when I'm thinking about uh, when I'm starting somebody on some oxygen, when they're breathless on the ward is, what is the likelihood of them being a CO2 retainer? And if they do have an increased likelihood, which, you know, generally speaking, is patients with underlying COPD or obesity or, or anything which restricts their chest wall movements, whether that's pain from the abdomen or obesity or ex- an excess of morphine or analgesia, um, you want to give them controlled oxygen. And giving someone controlled oxygen is a useful thing for you to do, uh, because if you're asking for help, it's nice to be able to just call the ICU registrar and say, these are their SATs on this FIO2. It just makes you sound slick. And it makes people take you very seriously when you're when you're asking for help.
0: Yeah. So on the topic of oxygen, yeah, you know, when should it be initiated and how should it be prescribed? Um, so I guess when should it be
1: initiated depends on what their baseline SATs are. We know that having or delivering oxygen and aiming for a target of 100% in somebody who's normally normally has low SATs, so we'd consider low SATs to be less than 95% um, is actually harmful. You're introducing a lot of oxygen free radicals and that can cause damage in the lungs. So um ultimately, the most useful guide is what is their baseline like? And what I tend to do if you have time is go to a clinic letter, find an old OBS chart or something like that and see what their baselines are. If they're sat 93% when they're well, then you don't need to aim for above that. You can say target 93 is fine. In a patient who's, who normally has reasonable saturations, then aiming for uh, 94 and above in a healthy patient who is not at risk of retaining carbon dioxide is a reasonable target. And then lowering the target down to sort of 88 to 92 for someone who's at risk of uh, retaining carbon dioxide is, is the norm at the moment, um, and I think is probably a reasonable approach. But w- what I would say is if they're very breathless and their sats are very low, putting them on any device which gets their sats up into a target range, and then doing a blood gas and identifying that they, have, that they are a CO2 retainer is not an indication to just turn the oxygen off, it's then titrate it back down carefully. In terms of the delivery device and the selection delivery device, um, it's good to know uh, which devices give you controlled oxygen. So they can tell you this is what the FiO2 that's being delivered to the lung is and which ones don't. And basically, the only types of controlled oxygen that are easily available on the ward is is an Evo or a high-flow nasal prong device that will tell you what the percentage of oxygen is. So I think that's a really good treatment for somebody who's hypoxic. In the first instance, if the SATs is just a little bit low, so you know, let's say 92 or 93% in a young person with a chest infection, the nasal prongs are reasonable. Um, but you can only increase that up to a flow rate of 4 litres, and then that's going to give you approximately an FiO2 of about 33%. So you're not increasing the amount of oxygen, oxygen they're breathing in all that much. Beyond that, if someone's desaturating to the point where high-flow nasal prongs are not enough, then you've obviously got a routine mask or a non-rebreather I have a tendency to use a non-rebreather in most people. Um, if if, um, if, if our nasal prongs are not enough, because um, you can get a lot in and you're not going to be entraining carbon dioxide and and putting them at risk of hypercapnia. But I think the getting used to an airvo is a really uh, is a really good sort of all-round treatment because obviously you get some positive airway pressure as well. Um, it humidifies, doesn't dry the airway out. It allows the patient to talk and eat. doesn't give you any sort of suffocating feeling. So there, in most wards, there are more and more FO devices available. And it means that if it's not enough, if they're still desaturating, then you can easily say to the nurse, well, can you target a higher FO too? So if they've gone 35% at that time, you can say, well, bump it up to 40 and let's see how they go. And then again, you've got a pattern and a number that you can use to ask for help and ask for advice over the phone. You know, from a, from a perspective of a respiratory registrar, if one of my patients on the ward is receiving 50% via a high-flow nasal device, then I can call ICU and say, I don't have much else I can offer them. You need to come and make
0: a decision about whether you'd take this person and ventilate. It's one of the easiest times to sell a patient to ICU. When yeah. you've done the appropriate conservative measures, yeah. you've bumped, moved your way up, um, you, and you can describe exactly how much oxygen they're requiring. Yeah. And
1: I think it helps to talk with the nurses, quite frankly, about it as well. Um, you know, Venturi masks are really helpful, particularly when you don't have uh, an airvo available. But we don't use them enough, so people, I think, have lost some familiarity with them. But, you know, knowing that you have an option to control their oxygen with a Venturi mask by, you know, giving them 24% or 28% or whatever, it, it shows the nurse that you, uh, you consider oxygen to be an important drug you know, to be one that we have to be used carefully and that there are consequences for, for using it excessively.
0: It's been my experience with venturi masks that yeah most nurses haven't seen them before. Yeah. Um, it's not you can teach somebody in a couple of minutes how to use it properly, but it's yeah. worth going over. Yeah. Um we, we we skipped over the Hudson masks. so you just use a non rebreather. Well a Hudson you mask you can give you an, an FO
1: two of sort of fifty or sixty percent, but by the time you're going up to high flow rates to deliver that much oxygen, then they're going to be in training carbon dioxide and basically breathing back in some of what they're breathing out. So I don't tend to use Hudson masks, but again, it's, it's, it's a matter of what you have available. In most uh, hospital wards, the patient will have high flow, or will have nasal prongs at the bedside and a rebreather mask. It's reasonably uncommon for them to have a Hudson mask and not a rebreather mask. But just being aware of the limitations of a Hudson mask is that essentially the higher the flow rate, the more they may be entraining carbon dioxide and they may, they may become hypercap. High-
0: yeah, and also this is a patient that's then requiring more oxygen than we can deliver by nasal cannulae, and so you've got to take it just that much more seriously, um, mm-hmm. and therefore you may as well be using a device where you can, you know the FiO2, or with a yeah. non-rebreather mask, you're really just trying to get as much as you can while you're sorting other things out. So which with the Venturi mask, um, it's good to have a look at these on the ward if you're not familiar with them. Um, they've got a few different attachments of different colors, um, which printed on them will tell you the FiO2 and they also have the flow rate that they're supposed to be attached to. So a common mistake is to just put them on the highest flow rate and that won't actually give you the FiO2 that's um, they're designed for. We've mentioned you've got
1: on your list of things the, the um, bag mask there and I think that's an important skill to have in your arsenal as well particularly in the, the drowsy patient, uh, the one who's not ventilating enough and those are fairly common in patients who've got either severe illness or who have been narcosed or have another reason for being drowsy. Maybe they've had a stroke and having central apnees or something along those lines. And it's just a way to augment their respiration until something more definitive comes along. And we all practice it when we're doing our anaesthetic runs and we do a little bit of it in our um, ACLS course or whatever, but it's not something we, we frequently use. But it is a part of the resus trolley.
0: It's always there and available. And it's certainly something that requires your full attention. So at that stage, you'll be calling a code, but you may well be using it of course. while you're waiting for help to arrive. Yeah. How about CPAP um, and on the ward? Is it used? Well, it, it
1: is um, less commonly now than it used to be because we have high-flow nasal prongs. So CPAP, um, obviously, you can very carefully control the amount of positive airway pressure, but the high-flow nasal cannulae do give, well, the manufacturer will say up to four centimetres of water of positive pressure, provided the patient's mouth is closed. So um, we would tend to use CPAP less on the ward more in the sort of uh resus situation where perhaps they've got acute pulmonary edema or something like that and you just want to blast air into soggy lungs to open them up um we would see probably more patients on the ward receiving bipap because really it's the only treatment beyond ventilation be uh, beyond invasive
0: ventilation for patients with type 2 respiratory failure and if you're called to see them it's probably worth discussing with a senior um, yeah, you yeah. The story. and arming yourself with an <laughs> arterial blood gas. Um, <laughs> when you've done an ABG, uh, what's, what's your
1: process for interpreting them? With an ABG, the first, the first thing is trying to satisfy yourself that it's a whether it's an arterial gas or venous gas, does it correlate with the saturations that were measured at the time? And then it's important to note, um, if the patient's on oxygen therapy, what the FiO2 was, because otherwise it'll be assumed that they'll be on room air, which is 21%, of course. So that's the first step. Um, Is it an arterial gas? And if so, how much oxygen are they getting? Um, I take the obvious respiratory bias of looking first at the carbon dioxide. Um, Is that high or low? And then does the pH correlate with that? Um, Obviously, if you've got a respiratory acidosis, it's quite straightforward. If you've got a high CO2 and the pH is normal, then my next step is to look carefully at the bicarbonate. Bicarbonate, and particularly in, in respiratory patients, is quite helpful because... You might have patients who are, let's say, with OHS or COPD who are chronically hypercapnic with a normal pH because they've compensated by, um, by retaining bicarbonate. And, and actually, that in itself is a good indicator of what sort of treatments you're going to need for them in the future if they decompensate as well. Then I think the other, the other bits on an ABG that's important to pay attention to are the lactate. It tells you about the tissue perfusion tells you a little bit in respiratory patients about how much subutamol they've had you know you get patients coming out of uh, of of who have been pumped full of continuous subutamol and that gives you a lactic acidosis um, and it's and you need to note that because when you're looking at the pH you need to see if there's a if there's a metabolic component to it beyond uh, the carbon dioxide and, and bicarb as well and then make sure not to miss the other things like uh you know, we've all had patients who we saw who are acutely breathless who took a few minutes for somebody to notice that the hemoglobin was 50 on it um, or the electrolytes are abnormal and they're having arrhythmias or those sorts of things but that's that's my general approach to blood gases and i i still bit slightly from the older school generation of i still advocate doing an abg and, and i as a house officer i found it very helpful to have one in almost any acutely unwell patient because it gives you so much information very quickly and and you can you can generate some good numbers i mean if you call a respiratory consultant and say this person's P- pco2 is 15 then they need bipap um if the, if you're calling a surgical registrar and say <clears throat> this patient has just had abdominal surgery he's got a lactate of 10 or 15 or something then they take you seriously so it's good for the patient but it also gives you a bit of backup as well
0: yeah and you just need to do a few to actually get confident with them and, and then it's a much smaller barrier
1: yeah and you know the thing i always tell the house officers is um, I, I do a lot of blood gases we do them in clinic and obviously on the, a lot of our patients on the ward but If it's hard, it's hard. It's probably hard for you. It's probably hard for your registrar and everybody else. The easy ones are are always quite straightforward. So it's good to practice
0: them, but there are some that are just always difficult and that's okay. So what's a CO2 retainer
1: and how can we confidently identify one? Well, without going into too much physiology, um, when you retain carbon dioxide, it's a ventilatory problem. So you're just not breathing out enough. That's the easiest way to describe it. So you have to think of who's at risk of it first. And then we would diagnose a CO2 retainer as anybody who's, who has a blood gas with an elevated carbon dioxide. Now, a lot of the patients you'll see have always got an elevated carbon dioxide and they're well compensated. And it's important to note that it's actually the acute disturbance in the pH which causes the problems associated with hypercapnia. I mean, I've had patients with very high PCO2s who are completely renally compensated, who have no symptoms. And then you see patients who've got a PCO2 of something relatively only slightly elevated of say eight who were acidotic and those ones appear very sick. So to to answer the question more directly, anybody with elevated PCO two on an arterial gas that's truly an arterial gas would be considered a retainer. If they've had one in the past and have had other blood gases which were more normal, then it's good to to sort of see what the context is. So were they retaining because they had been over-sedated and therefore were not ventilating properly, or is it because of underlying respiratory disease or obesity or whatever so the context is important but if they have ever persistently elevated uh, pco2 on a blood gas whether or not it's associated with uh, a rise in bicarbonate or an abnormal ph is, is largely irrelevant it tells you something about their risk with oxygen and suggests you know that you should at least be using controlled oxygen of some form and then probably readjusting your sat's target
0: often a Water call will be for a reduced oxygen saturation rather than actual the actual symptom of shortness of breath. yeah, and it's very common when you're on nights uh, that a patient who's asleep gets their saturations measured, yeah um and they're low enough to initiate a page. So again, are they actually desaturating? I think is probably
1: a good question. Check, check for yourself um, and making a, a sort of a holistic assessment of do they look unwell? Are they breathless? Are the other observations abnormal? Those are all things to consider first. Um, keeping in mind that it's normal for people to, to desaturate when they're breathless. Um, we, see, we do have an eye to look at patients with sleep apnea all the time and even in, in normal patients dropping from SATs in the mid to high 90s to the low 90s would be pretty common. So in that context, I don't think you need to do anything about it specifically, particularly if the patient's asymptomatic.
0: So just clarify, you mean it's normal to desaturate a little bit? It's normal to sleeping. desaturate
1: a little bit when sleeping, yeah. Um, if they're desaturating quite a lot, so going from, let's say, the mid 90s into the 80s, and then it's, it's worth just watching them for a second. You know, if they look like somebody who's got sleep apnea with a big thick neck, who's got their head propped forward with a pillow to close off their airway even further, watch them if they're snoring and they're taking big uh, gasping breaths after a period of apnea then the patient's got sleep apnea and just put them in a different position lie them on their sides try not to put the prop their head up too high with pillows those sorts of things can help and you'd be surprised i mean obstructive sleep apnea is exceptionally common in the general population and there are plenty of patients who every night that they're asleep desaturate into the 70s and probably do it for years before we notice it so Again, that's you know, being pragmatic when, they, when they're awake due to the, to the saturations return to normal. The, the circumstance that I think that, that um, caught me a few times was central apneas, particularly on cardiac and stroke wards. And again, it's worth just observing their breathing pattern for a while to make sure that it's, you know, are they desaturating because they're having long periods of chain-stoke breathing, um, which is, of course, much harder to address than sleep apnea. But generally speaking, accept a little bit of desaturation in most people. Think of the clinical context. Are they unwell? Are they breathless? And then once they're awake, does it return to normal? That's a good approach.
0: Yeah, you can take advantage of the fact on nights that the patient is asleep. It's one of the one times you can actually observe breathing without yes. them being impacted by being watched. Yes. Um, yeah. And I remember, especially on orthopedics, it was useful. Yeah. Yeah. I always had this fear of uh, you know the classic water and ob's are normal, but the patient's actually dead. Yeah. I would, I would go and look, and I'd see is the chest actually rising and falling in a normal way, and that was usually quite a satisfying thing to yes. see that and document that. Um, yeah and, yeah okay so and I guess what I'm trying to get at is you probably don't need to put them onto oxygen just to improve the number so that you can get some sleep. No, no,
1: absolutely not and in fact, I had a conversation with an anesthetic registrar just yesterday about a patient who was known to have severe sleep apnea but doesn't take CPAP and then in the had a minor minor procedure, and post-operatively, they were monitoring them very closely as they always do, and noticed while I was asleep he was desaturating into his 70s. But I was able to pull up an old overnight oximetry which demonstrated that that's what he always does. And that's, that's fine. As long as it improves when they're awake, that's okay.
0: Should we be referring these patients
1: for an outpatient clinic? Uh, that's, a, that's a much more complicated <laughs> question. Um, the answer is, yeah, you can always refer them. Uh, remember that all referrals are triaged by a consultant who might ask you more questions. Um, Obstructive sleep apnea probably affects maybe 30 or 40% of the male population over 50, which is a huge workload if we have to see all of them. And CPAP is a treatment for people who are either dangerously hypoxic, so the ones who desaturate consistently to the 60s or 70s. um, Because when you desaturate that low, while they may not be breathless, they're at risk of cardiac arrhythmias. Um, Or more importantly, the ones who are tired who are dangerous driving because actually the evidence for using CPAP for most patients is fairly weak if they've got severe sleep apnea and they're tired then they will benefit from CPAP if they have life-threatening desaturation then CPAP is great but for the huge number of patients who don't fall within those criteria then it's not going to do them a tremendous amount of good
0: but but that's certainly a decision we can make because you usually won't know the patients well on nights but I think it's also very easy to also assume that the day team knows everything about the patient. Yeah. So you might have this piece of information that they have probably obstructive sleep apnea. Yeah. Um, you don't necessarily know if they're tired um, or you know what the circumstances, but I suppose you could at least look and see why are they in hospital? Are they yeah. possibly here from a car crash from, yeah. from it? Yeah. So, yeah, so just look at that context. Right? And I suppose if you're, if you're thinking that a referral might be worthwhile, um, either doing it or making a clear note suggesting that the, day team yeah to, t- to take a sleep hygiene history to ask a partner
1: if they've witnessed apneas those sorts of things yeah
0: so hospitals often have policies um, and guidance on empiric antibiotic use for pneumonia um, but do you have any pearls of wisdom to share about or, or any common misconceptions uh, related to the antibiotics that we use for pneumonia yeah it's a good
1: question i mean one of the common misconceptions is based on aspiration pneumonia which is probably a bit of a um a misnomer in some respects. And a lot of hospitals have taken antibiotics off the protocol for aspiration because technically it's a chemical pneumonitis. It's, you know, stomach acid causing irritation to the to the lung. Um the, the tricky thing with with stopping antibiotics in that context is that once the lung's inflamed, secondary infection is very likely. And you've got to be really confident that aspiration was the cause in the first place. So I don't have any great objection to treating those patients with antibiotics. Um, atypical cover can be overused. You know, you see roxithromycin and erythromycin prescribed a lot in, in combination with Augmentin or Kefiroxin or something along those lines. But it's worth noting that New Zealand has, particularly in the spring and summer months, has some of the highest rates of Legionnaire's disease in the entire world. So, again, treating with roxithromycin in combination with uh, with a penicillin is, is reasonable all of the time. Um, I do think people often forget with roxithromycin that um, it's going to interact with their warfarin. And that's something to consider as a house officer, particularly if you if your patient with pneumonia now has some Um It's worth just knowing the interactions and with all of the macrolides, the impact that that has on uh, QT prolongation and the risk for arrhythmia and that sort of thing. But generally speaking, the the guidelines for pneumonia are, are they tend to be quite challenging because there are usually empiric guidelines. That we we probably only get a bug in pneumonia maybe thirty or forty percent of the time in which case you have to make a best guess. So I think following the guidelines for pneumonia is generally the best way to go.
0: So how about prednisone use for pneumonia? When should that be initiated?
1: Well, that's a good question. Um, one of the things that I was I was thinking through when you asked me what, what my approach to assessing a patient was is is actually from, from my house officer days, you can give somebody a dose of prednisone without causing much harm. The vast majority of patients could have 40 milligrams of prednisone to be assessed the next day or to be assessed when... You have your other investigations back. So the same goes for frusemide. The same goes for you know a couple of subutamol inhalers or a single dose of augmentin while you're trying to work out what's going on with the patient. All those sorts of things. Um, most patients, or the vast majority of patients, are not going to be harmed by prednisone. The way that I think of prednisone is the same as nebulizer: it's a treatment for wheeziness. It's a treatment for airway inflammation causing airway narrowing. And if the patient doesn't have that clinically, if they're not wheezy, then it's probably not going to help a tremendous amount. It's safe to give a go if you think that they're pretty safe. They might feel they're pretty fun. safe. I mean, um, you know, it's the same with giving someone a bolus of fluid. You can always give somebody furosemide afterwards. <laughs> you know, um, nobody is is ever going to be angry at you for giving somebody forty milligrams of prednisone as a one-off, um, unless they clearly have an allergy or a you know a psychiatric disorder that. And they might be prone to mania but even 40 milligrams most patients tolerate pretty well so
0: how quickly might you see a response to prednisone not quickly it's probably the, <laughs> the placebo <laughs> kicks in long
1: before i mean you have to think of how prednisone works in that it uh, works within the nucleus to suppress protein production and results in you know an increase production of other proteins so it's not a, a drug hitting a receptor and then there's an immediate downstream response so usually we say that you're not going to notice much from prednisone within about six hours um and again that's probably another rationale for saying, well, if the patient's breathless now I think they're wheezy, give them some prednisone because it's not going to work for a long time. You don't want to decide three or four hours later maybe I should give them some prednisone. Hydrocortisone probably doesn't work any quicker, but you know, that we, we do it to make ourselves feel better. So giving someone a dose of hydrocortisone is also reasonable.
0: On the topic of pneumonia investigations, there's things like urinary antigens, sputum samples and respiratory panels. When are these indicated?
1: Yeah, so that's a good question. I think as a house officer seeing a patient with pneumonia, you know, when you're on call, often they, ha- you know, these patients are admitted when, pa- when the, the post-acute team's busy. And, and if you notice that they've not had any microbiology done or attempted, then that's often a good time to try and intervene. Um, certainly in winter flu season, doing nasopharyngeal swabs is, is good. Um we as respiratory registrars get called to see patients quite frequently who've come in with what appeared to be simple pneumonia and they're not approving so uh, it's always useful as a baseline to have urinary antigens and sputum sputum's helpful for so many different things but you know always getting sputum off i think it's good if you if you're called to see somebody with pneumonia who's getting worse to ask why they are getting worse and my my thought process is yeah sometimes they're not on the right antibiotic and we need to try and find microbiology that well Allow us to change the antibiotic in a guided way. But often it's something more straightforward, like they're not getting better because they're not mechanically clearing sputum because they're in pain from pleurisy, or they're developing an empyema and that's an ongoing source of sepsis, or they've got mucus plugs that they can't clear because, you know, for various reasons, and maybe they need chest physio, or maybe they've got pneumonia because they're continuously aspirating or something along those lines. It's reasonably uncommon to find somebody who's not getting better because they're immunocompromised. Um, But certainly doing atypical pneumonia screens is is reasonable, and you can do that with a nasopharyngeal aspirate or on sputum. The other thing with those tests is that you can add them on retrospectively. So if you see a patient who's had a couple of sputum samples sent in the last few days and you think they're not getting better, maybe there's something atypical about their presentation or they've got bilateral changes on their chest X-ray or they've got some risk factors or exposure to something, then you can always call the lab and say, can you please add an atypical PCR, which will look for the conventional things. Um,
0: Okay. So that's not just done automatically.
1: Not done automatically. No, no, you have to ask for it. And some, I have to say, some of the microbiology registrars they they will take interest in a sputum sample and see the chest X-ray and add it on themselves. Um, but it's certainly something that you can do retrospectively, and it's quite good, you know, if you're if you're seeing a patient at nine o'clock in the evening and ask the nurses to get a sputum sample. Well, if they're not coughing anymore or if they're not bringing up an awful lot, you can actually get an answer quicker by adding it on to a test done previously. So yeah, certainly, trying to get microbiology is is always helpful if it hasn't done been done before. Repeating microbiology, you know, repeating urinary antigens or nasopharyngeal swabs on patients who've had them
0: done previously is really helpful. Oh, no, that's saw that. So you're basically saying that they're all indicated, really, in, in any case of they're all, they're all indicated, in and and I
1: think any you notice that, I have to say, unfortunately, with pneumonia, often people make the chest X-ray diagnosis and then they put them on antibiotics, and there's no great effort to try and obtain a you know a microbiological diagnosis and if you think of a uti you'd never diagnose it without an msu whereas a pneumonia is a radiological diagnosis but you still have to try and push for some samples of something a good time to do that is if they're having chest physio cuz usually then the physiotherapist encourages them to cough up a big mucus plug and then nobody thinks we should get a sample of that um, it's good to to think and this is perhaps less important for your acute assessment but thinking particularly if they're not coughing anything up um, what other ways can we find out what the the organism is? And I think at that point it's worth re- discussing with respiratory, and we can think about doing bronchoscopies and washings and all that. Stuff.
0: As a respiratory, Reg, do you get involved much with PE?
1: Yeah, we do. We we see the massive PEs, and to be honest, mm-hmm. people call us quite often, and uh, we would get, give advice more than taking over the care in respiratory. But I, of course, as my in my gen med training, have looked after numerous PEs mm-hmm. in the past. Um, PE always has to be in your differential for a patient who's uh, breathless. Particularly patients who have very little in the way of findings. Um, You know, if somebody has uh, no clinical findings other than low saturations and a normal chest x-ray, then you have to be thinking about it, you know. Um, The thing with PE to remember is that to some extent, having a pulmonary embolism is probably physiological. It's a way of your lungs filtering out systemic emboli before they go through the heart and into the brain and cause a stroke, which of course would be irreversible. So PE as an incidental finding is very common. If somebody has pleurisy as a result of, you know, if they've got chest pain as a result of PE, then it's a massive one. They have to have infarcted a territory of lung that goes out as far as the pleura because obviously the lung tissue itself has no sensory pain supply. So um, pain or the absence of pain when you're considering PE is rarely particularly reassuring. Um, We talked briefly about D-dimers D-dimer on a hospitalised patient is is helpful, but you generate a lot of false positives um, and, and results in you having more investigations. So anybody who is in post in hospital automatically has risk factors for a PE, particularly if they've been there for a while. Fortunately, nowadays a lot of patients are on appropriate um, prophylaxis, but you always have to consider it. I, I think PE is the tricky one that it's often. If the patient is in dire straits, has collapsed and is breathless, then do a CTPA. It'll show you what's going on in their chest. You know, you'll see if if the cause of their breathlessness is actually pulmonary edema. You'll see that on a CTPA. But in the patient who's just rumbling along, a little bit breathless, a little bit hypoxic, it's usually something we go to as a diagnosis of exclusion. Um, There's lots of PE ruled out criteria. Usually they're validated in the A&E setting. You know, in a, you, you see this patient who's been referred with symptoms that could be PE. It's a way of excluding D-dimer or, or, or uh, removing the need for a D-dimer. But once the patient's already been admitted to hospital, then,
0: you know, it's not validated quite it, so exactly. much. It's that a context. really, really good point. You really can't use the WELLS score or the PERC rules because these patients are already at an elevated risk. They would already have a score of one or two, yeah. enough to kind of take you down that. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah.
1: And and you know, some of the newest P scoring systems, like the PERC rule, for example, anyone over fifty is going to have a positive score. Um, so there's no point in doing them in those patients. And I think you've got a much more you know, you'd have a you'd have a much uh, greater reason to do a CTPA in a patient who's breathless in hospital than you would on somebody who's just arrived from the community.
0: So I guess breathlessness, um or decrease in saturations where you can't find any other cause.
1: Yeah. And looking for additional risk factors, particularly if they've got a cancer or if they've had a significant period of immobility or or surgery or long-haul flight within the last sort of three or four months often. Um, yeah, it's, it's always something to, to keep in your differential, and it's always in the differential when we see patients in clinic as well, but um, certainly for hospitalised patients it has to be considered fairly high up. Um, just a, a point on that is that most arterial gases when you, when you send it off to the lab, we'll calculate an AA gradient for you, uh, which is a, a rough sort of marker of ventilation and perfusion. Um, a normal AA gradient would be really uncommon in somebody who's got a big, significant PE. So that's another reason to, to consider an ABG. And I have seen occasionally uh, respiratory consultants recommending using an AA gradient to try and rule out a PE in, let's say, a pregnant woman where the D-dimer is going to be positive and you'd like to avoid any further imaging.
0: Yeah, and just on that note, to get an AA gradient automatically calculated, you need to provide the patient's temperature on the form. Okay. Um and okay. you can just do just get the tympanic monitor, just do the temperature and write yep. it on. Yeah, so, yeah, yep. I, I do that just for all ABGs. I never know when I'm gonna want an AA gradient. Yeah, yeah, good. But it took me ages to work that <laughs> A yeah. bit of advice out. <laughs> yeah. It's there on the form saying temperature, and you're yeah. like, <laughs> what, do yeah, yeah. what do I need that for? Yeah, 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 exactly. But I think we've covered everything um, that I wanted to ask you about. Did you have any any other advice
1: here for the audience? I, I, I'm not sure if it was included in the prior recording part, but I, I think it's just important for house officers to know that they're not expected to come up with a fancy diagnosis out of hours. That and My expectation for my house officers, whether it's a gen med or a respiratory run, is that they will start the ball rolling, that they will be Um, attempting to put a patient on appropriate oxygen um, that they will be starting off some investigations and then to call me if they're worried I think that any registrar that that should be what they would expect from their from their house Mm -hmm. officers we don't want you to diagnose uh, something rare and unlikely because the vast majority of patients who are breathless in hospital it's it's something fairly common Um, and I you know always asking for help and keeping us updated and and Personally, from my perspective, what I really like from a house officer, and I have to say, this is what I got from you when you were my house officer, is is to say, um, this is what the patient presents as, this is what I think they have, and this is what I'd like to do, and then to say, I'm going to call you back if that doesn't work, and I think that allows shows the registrar that you know you've got a sensible thought process, we can trust that thought process. Um, and that if if that doesn't work, then excellent. I'll come and see you. I'll come and see the patient with you, or we need to call for some other help, or consider some other image, or something along those lines. So do try and make an assessment, and try and tell your registrar what you think is going on and, and what you'd like to do, because um, then we can we can see whether or not we agree with you on that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and they start making plans, and that's how you learn to make them. because yeah. yeah. It doesn't just change overnight when you become a registrar.
1: No, and I think it's a bit of a bummer that in most hospitals the house officers aren't holding the resus pager or Mm. the triple eight whatever it is code pager because ultimately that's how you learn go to those
0: and you actually miss most of those because you're off doing something else unless you initiate the code yeah Yeah. well thanks very much to our expert dr cam sullivan oh no problem anytime please send feedback questions and suggestions of what you'd like discussed on the show to feedback at wardcalls.com or find at wardcalls on twitter facebook or instagram please leave us a review on itunes to help others find the show Thanks to the NZRDA Education Trust for making this podcast possible. Our advice does not replace your local hospital policy or guidelines, nor good clinical judgment.